Are we? Uh, we are in, again, Psalm 80. Let's stand together. We will be going through this entire psalm of 19 verses tonight. Uh, again, another psalm of Asaph, as we will see in, in the inscription there. But let's go ahead and, and read as we are standing uh, in honor of the word of God. Psalm 80, I'm reading out of the New King James Version of the Word of God. To the chief musician, set to the lilies a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come. And save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with a bread of tears, and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her bows to the Red Sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? And boar, uh, the, the boar out of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you have made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us. O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. As we look at this particular psalm, and we, we, we ask, Lord, that you would just have your way with us, Lord. Might your spirit be with us to teach us, to lead us into your truth. Lord, to bring glory to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, might he give us understanding and to be able to discern and have the wisdom to apply these truths to our, to our own lives, Lord, today. So have your way now, God, we pray, and be glorified in this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this 80th Psalm this evening, we see uh, within the inscription 
to the chief musician set to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Uh, these are, uh, within this inscription are things that we've seen before, uh, and so we, we don't really need to get uh, deep into them, al al although we do want to take note that it does speak of a testimony of Asaph, and yet as we look at the con uh, content of this psalm, it would not be the Asaph of King David, again, as we've uh, many times we've stated in these psalms that uh, are uh, within the inscription say it's a psalm of Asaph, a number of them are uh, psalms of what we should term the sons of Asaph or uh, uh, some descendants of Asaph. And these, uh, with, with, with the content, it looks like that, of course, the, the writer is, you know, bemoaning the fact that, that Israel has had trouble, that, that there, has, there have been attacks upon Israel and there, there has not, not total destruction, but a degree of destruction that has come upon them. And, and one of the things that we can do too is even as the, the psalmist cries out to God, you know, that, that he would restore them, you know, I, I think that, that we, we can apply that to both the physical restoration of all that has been destroyed, not complete destruction, but all that has been destroyed by the enemy, but also restoration of the soul, restoration of relationship with God. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more in, in just a few minutes. But, but again, by looking at the content I want to read something from James Montgomery Boyce in, in relation to the content and assigning some kind of uh, perhaps a time when this psalm would have been written by one of the descendants of Asaph. He wrote, as with several of the Asaph psalms, this one is often attributed to a later Asaph. Here not only the southern kingdom, but also the northern kingdom. It calls God the shepherd of Israel. It speaks of Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the major northern tribes. And since it asks for Israel's deliverance, it is best seen as a plea for the deliverance of the northern kingdom of Israel sometime before its fall to the Assyrian armies in 721 B.C. Um, another writer suggested this that this was written during the reign of King Ahaz before the captivity of the ten tribes in 721, as we just read, which was a period when both Israel and Judah were harassed by both the Syrians and Assyrians, whose devastations forcibly suggest to us the figurative language employed in the psalm. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that because... We, we, we do see words like, you know, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. We, we see Israel mentioned, of course, that, that God would, would, would save Israel, help Israel. Uh, Asaph was um, being a, uh, the, the descendants of Asaph would have been from Judah. And, and, and so we have a, a Judean crying out for help for the, for the, northern tribe of Israel 
And so many times in the Old Testament, we see that they are against one another as well. And, and, and they, they were a, a rival, so to speak. But we, we see these prayers given for Israel by a descendant of Asaph, which shows a very, uh, uh, a, a very real heart of tenderness on the part of this descendant of Asaph who, who likely wrote this particular psalm. But getting into the words of the psalm itself, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. This is the first time we see the term shepherd of Israel used in the Old Testament. Although it's a, it's a, common, um, it's a common term, we see God uh, spoken of uh, related to as a shepherd by King David, of course. Uh, God is not named the shepherd of Israel there, but you know he says, he, he speaks of God as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And, and, and so this thought of God being the shepherd is not a new thought, but the title itself, O oh, Shepherd of Israel, that, that's new in terms of that particular name of, of God. But again, a very tender picture is presented here uh, by the psalmist, especially in view of the 23rd Psalm written by King David. You who dwell between the cherubim. Now, this is one, an another reason that we can you know, believe that this, was, uh, uh, this psalm was written after or, or by one of its descendants of Asaph because, of course, the idea of God dwelling between the cherubim, it speaks of the existence of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, within the Holy of Holies, within the temple. And if that's the case, the temple is still there. And, and, and so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be re related to uh, the Babylonian, um, or it wouldn't be related to the, the Babylonian uh, captivity or anything like that. But the point being that, that this idea of the cherubim and, and God dwelling between them, uh, well, let, me, well, let me read out of Exodus, Exodus chap, chapter 25. Th these are instructions that God is giving to Moses about the construction of the temple and all the implements and the Ark of the Covenant as well, and specifically the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 22, God says, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So God speaks through Moses that he's going to meet with the people there above the mercy seat between the cherubim. And of course the lid of the ark uh, had the mercy seat and then the two cherubim on, 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 e on either side. And that's, that, that's where his presence was. He'll meet with them there. So this idea of God being in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, uh, above the mercy seat, you know, and you know, just the idea that God would dwell above the mercy seat. Isn't that a great thought? Above the mercy seat, that place where mercy takes place. Because that, that's who he is. He's a God of mercy. And of course, it's very fitting in that way, but it's, it also is very revealing at the same time in, in the sense that he chooses 
that. But also the idea of God dwelling between the cherubim, in reality, God does dwell in the heavens with the angels around him. We, we see in Revelation 7, 11, these words. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So, you know, not, not only is the, well, the Ark of the Covenant and that dwelling place of God above the mercy seat between the cherubim, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a pattern of what actually takes place in heaven. And of course, when God gave the instructions to Moses about, you know, building the, uh, uh, about the tabernacle and about everything that, that is a part of the tabernacle and, and, and the Ark of the Covenant and you know, all the things that are going on and, and the, the altars and everything, he told them th that that was a pattern of what actually is in heaven. So that does make sense that that would be the case, but let's make no mistake about it that right now God is sitting on his throne with the angels around that throne. So it, it does fit in with what we see there. And there in verse 2, before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. So, so these three uh, tribes from the northern kingdom of Israel are, are, are mentioned here in regard to the, the help that they need. And, and the psalmist writes, stir up your strength and come and, and, and save us. It's a, it's a prayer for salvation. It's a prayer for deliverance is, is what we see being prayed here. Stir up your strength. Uh, um, well, even in the, in the first verse, we see the, the, the thought of, of, of shining forth. Um, and then in verse 3, with the, uh, the, 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 pet, the petition for restoring us, restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So this idea of God causing his face to shine upon those northern tribes, that northern kingdom of Israel, that they might d be delivered. Uh, and, and those are words that, that, that come from the blessing that God gave to uh, Aaron to give to the people, the, the Aaronic blessing. You know, um, the, 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 the first high priest Aaron was given this particular prayer to pray over the people, something that we're very familiar with. It's out of Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What a wonderful prayer that is. But we see the idea, the, the, the idea of his face shining upon us, lifting up his countenance upon us. It's, it's him looking upon us and the glory of his presence is just shining upon us as he's looking on us, his countenance toward us, and with that comes a tremendous amount of blessing. It's just really speaking about the presence of God and the blessing that comes from the presence of God. Now, the psalmist is writing this at a time that it seems as if the Lord had turned his back on Israel. 
So he's saying, restore us. Look upon us again. Let your face shine on us once again. You know, th that's the idea that, that we see here. Be because, you know, with, with the, uh, um, uh, the, the way that Syria and Assyria and, and a few other nations too over the years had come against Israel and, and, and plundered them and, and, and so forth, the northern uh, uh, kingdom probably had not yet been taken into captivity by Assyria in 721, as we read earlier. But with all those things going on, you know, the, the people have to ask, especially in, in the context of the way that God brought them into the land. Now, this was some time before. Now, we're talking about, you know, before 721, maybe 800 to 750 B.C., something like that. The Lord brought the people into the promised land somewhere around 1300 B.C. So we're, we're talking eight, we're talking 500 plus years later, right, that this is taking place. So there's been five centuries that have gone by, and, and, and by reading the history of, of, of Israel, we can look at First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We can look at the Judges before that, uh, and, and 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 we can see the various things that have taken place there in Israel. Even Israel being established out of rebellion against Judah and out of rebellion against the sons of, of David who were king and Rehoboam going up to the northern kingdom and establishing the kingdom and, and two particular cities where, where th there were worship places rather than going to Jerusalem because he didn't want the people going to Jerusalem because he thought maybe they would stay. You know, I mean, it was just a... And then all the idolatry that took place because of, of, of these things. And, you know, a lot of time for people to just kind of drift away from God. And that's what happened. And, and again, one of the things that we see is, as we look at the North, as, as we look at the Old Testament, both kingdoms, and uh, whether it's a kingdom of, uh, or it's a nation of Israel or, or Judah, e either way, or both, you know, we, we see what took place with them, and there's something there in relation to the way that we as people can be just the same in terms of over a period of time, you know, growing complacent. We've talked about this with the book of Judges and the seven cycles. We, we talked about that recently, you know. Things are going well, then they grow complacent, and then through the complacency, allow some idolatry to enter in, and then judgment from God takes place, and then there's an oppression that, that, that's with them. The people cry out. He delivers them. Things are good. Then they grow complacent. You know, those cycles... You know, and, and we, we can do exactly the same thing. But here we, we see the people asking, the psalmist is asking, and even in verse 4 we can see this, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? We saw the same kind of question back in the 79th Psalm. psalm. How long? How long are you going to be angry against our prayers and not answer our prayers? How long are you just not going to respond? Just wondering, what is going on? And by the way, before we move on, I just want to point out that in verse 3, we see a, a refrain in this psalm 
which is repeated three other times. There in verse 3, then in verse 7. Almost exactly the same, a little bit different. Then again in verse 14, uh, somewhat different, but the same idea, the same thoughts are there in verse 14. In fact, that word return is the same Hebrew word that is translated as restore in the other verses, verses 3 and verse 7. Then again in verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. You know, so, so those refrains we see strewn throughout this psalm just crying out to God for restoration. Restore us, O God. The idea of restoring us, O God, is the idea of bringing us back to that place where we were once with you. Restore us physically, and as I said earlier, spiritually as well in terms of relationship. Restore our hearts, restore our souls, restore us to that place. Do that work in us that you will be blessed, will be pleased with us. But as he gazes upon them, if they, if, if they, they truly do, if God truly does cause his face to shine on them, truly the restoration will take place. Just a, a beautiful picture that we see there. But again, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? Um, in Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 to 3 we see Isaiah writing these words Behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear it's like, this is a direct answer to that question. How long is it going to be that you're not going to hear our prayers, right? Uh, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So hiding his face from them, his face is not on them, on them the, 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 the shining that comes from his glory is not upon them. And so... They're left without his help, right? That, that's the idea that we see there. Going on, verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And, and so that, that's something for us to give some attention to, guys. You know, if it seems to us that God is not answering our prayer, he's just not answering, not responding, First place we need to look is our own heart. We need to ask God to show us. You know, whenever we take uh, communion, you know, it, it, this idea of examining our hearts, examining ourselves, right? Yeah, but the, the trouble with examining ourselves is that our view of ourselves can be somewhat tainted by our own pride by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to ask God. As David wrote in Psalm 139, see if there be any wicked way in me. Right? We need to ask him to show us. Because if I just simply look at my own life, my own heart, from my own perspective, without God being involved in it, I'm not going to see myself right. Right? Right? 
Um, and so we need to ask for God's help in that. But we need to examine ourselves. We need to look because it could very well be that we're just refusing to respond to God about something and yet expecting him to treat us as if we're these perfect little angel children of his. You know what I mean? Now, we don't earn his favor, but at the same time, when we, as his children, when we're disobedient, it causes some tension in the relationship. We're not treating him as our father. You know, we were saying earlier, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. Yeah, he is. But we can't expect him just to throw blessing after blessing after blessing our way, regardless of how we actually treat him. We'll say, you're a good father. Dad, you're so good, so just pour it on. Pour it on. Come on. I, I, I enjoy this. But as his son, I need to act like his son. I need to love him like his son should love his father. Honor him like his son should honor his father. Obey him like his son should obey his father, right? It, 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 it's a two-way street in regard to that. Now, it doesn't mean I lose my sonship if I'm not, if, if, if I'm not uh, right with him in those ways, but the fellowship can be hindered and he needs to somehow chasten me. And when the chastening comes, I can feel like, Lord, where are you? Right? So that, that, that's what we're dealing with here. That's what Israel was dealing with here at the same time. Not only do we see that passage in Isaiah, but in, in 2 Chronicles 15, Verses 1 and 2. We read this. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa, the king, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake, will forsake you. It brings to mind the book of James also, when James writes in chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, um, it, it is true that God is the one who makes the first move. He is the one who saves us. He's the one who draws us to himself. He's the one who does the work. You know, we, we have no part in that. It's all him and none of us. At the same time, we do respond in the sense of acknowledging the, the truth of what he's done and just simply receiving it. It's like receiving a Christmas present, but if we never open it up, we're not going to be able to enjoy it. So the work of faith and believing in Christ is kind of opening the gift that God has for us so that we can enjoy the salvation and the relationship with him, the life that he gives to us. But 
as we see here, the, 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 the prophet Azariah speaking to King Asa, Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin tells him, you know, if, if, if you guys are with him or with the Lord, he'll be with you. If you seek him, and Jeremiah said, if you seek him with, his whole, with a whole heart, he'll be, found, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, don't be surprised that you s- somehow sense that you're being forsaken too, because he'll forsake you. So th- th- those are some realities that we see there that uh, we, we need to give attention to. Verse Verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. So just, an expo- uh, just a way of saying that just the, the pain that they are in, the, 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 the way that they are being uh, um, harassed, and not just simply harassed, but uh, attacked, and people losing their lives, and crops being destroyed, and things of that nature um, taking place. And it's just the sorrow that fills them because of what has taken place. You've made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Um, In in regard to that, C.H. Spurgeon wrote this. He wrote, Always jealous and malicious, Edom and Moab exulted over Israel's troubles and then fell to disputing about their share of the spoil. A neighbor's jeer is ever most cutting especially if a man has been superior to them and claimed to possess more grace. None are so unneighborly as envious neighbors. And so with what they see taking place with Israel, the hardships that they're facing, the, the, the victories that aren't being won anymore, just taking the losses at this point, you know, they're, they're you know, and, and the mockery that takes place, you know, just the idea of, you know, where is your God now kind of thing, right? Laughing at them as we see it written there in verse 6. And then the refrain once again in verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now, this is almost exactly the same, but not exactly the same. Lines two and three are, but the first line, restore us, back in verse three, restore us, O God. Here, it's restore us, O God of hosts. God of hosts refers to his power, refers to his authority. He is the God of the hosts of heaven. All the angelic hosts are um, at his disposal. Remember Jesus said to Peter, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels to come and help me if I need it? Right? That kind of thing. He is the God of hosts. You know, they, they do what he directs them to do. And so as, as, as the psalmist is crying out to God for restoration... He's adding, God, you're a God of power. You can make anything happen. The angelic hosts are, are at your beck and call. They'll do whatever you instruct them to do. That's the idea of just adding of hosts, those two words. Oh, God of hosts, cause your face to shine 
and we shall be saved. Look upon us, turn your countenance upon us, and we will receive the blessing of deliverance. Verse 8. Now we see this descendant of Asaph writing this psalm. Um, casting Israel as a vine, using that, that kind of a metaphor, which is uh, uh, common, you know, in the Old Testament that, that Israel is a vine. Um, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. I mean, and the reference is very clear. It's speaking about Israel. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it, caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. So, so we see the writer here speaking about the fact of the way that God brought Israel out of Egypt uh, in, in the time of Joshua. The other nations were cast out, not completely, of course, we know, but there was room made for Israel to come and for, for the vine to be planted. It took deep root, verse 9, and it filled the land. So it's talking about the, the prosperity of the vine, uh, the, the flourishing of the vine. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty Caesars with its bows. She sent her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. During the time of King Solomon, it was... The, the nation of Israel had its greatest glory in the sense of its power and its dominance and the area of land that, that it, the nation controlled. And from the sea, speaking about the Mediterranean Sea, of course, its uh, western boundary, and then to the east, to the Euphrates River. And that, that's what it's speaking there. To, from, from the sea to the river, uh, that's the expanse of the territory. So at that point, the... the uh, the, the writer is speaking about the way that the nation flourished, it, its strength and its power, its authority, its dominion. He's already been writing about how, you know, we, we need to be restored. You know, we're, we're, we're in tears, you know. We're, the, 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 our, our tears are both our food and our drink, you know. Well, look, look at verse 12 and 13. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The, the idea there of, of the hedges being uh, broken down is that, you know, what, what a landowner would do, a vineyard owner would do, is put fencing a, a, around the vineyard so that, you know, strangers can't go into it. Now, uh, in, in the law, it's stated that any person, any, any, uh, any Hebrew with property and they've, they've got some trees growing, vineyards or whatever, on the edges they're supposed to allow for people to come but, but not to enter in to the, the precinct or the, the, the innermost part of the, of the vineyard and so forth. But, you know, and this is stating the fact that, you know, the, these vineyards are being destroyed. Why have you removed its hedges, you know, or its walls or its fences? Uh, so that all who pass by pluck her fruit from it. The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. 
You know, the, the boar and the wild beast could be the, the, the nations of Syria and Assyria. You know, but a boar, um, that's a powerful animal. You know, uprooting plants. I mean, you can see how a boar would do that. You know, uh, a, a, a wild boar. That is, that is exactly what they do. You know, um, it's, not, it's not like a fox. That, that a fox gets in and just is kind of like an irritant. The boar destroys things. You know, so that, that, that's the idea that we have there. So with this vine metaphor, and then the question asked, why have you broken down her hedges? Well, we refer to what we shared already about, you know, the, the, the earlier comment, how long will you be angry? You know, it's like, well, well that's why. Because the nation of Israel is being judged. They're being chastised by God because they have grown unfaithful to him. They've, they're committing idolatry. They're worshiping, worshiping other gods. They've, uh, um, even, even Solomon allowed for altars of other gods to be placed in the temple precincts, you know. And it, it's just something that, and it, and it went downhill from there. Downhill from there. So judgment had to take place because God is a just and righteous God. Now, God being a just and righteous God can be something that can be concerning to us, but he's also a merciful and kind and gracious God. And of course, we see in our salvation what Jesus did on the cross, we see mercy and justice meeting at the cross. Justice taking place because Jesus was judged for our sin. Mercy taking place, meaning now we don't have to be judged for our sins. Yet, in a practical sense, in, the er in our everyday lives, as we live our lives, you know, uh, it is true that when we wander away from God, if we start compromising, if we start allowing some, some sort of idolatry to, to get into our hearts, God's going to deal with us. We're not going to be cast out, but he's going to deal with us. Okay. Israel was not destroyed as a nation, but he dealt with Israel. You will not be destroyed in the sense of your, your sonship or your daughtership removed from you, but God will deal with you. Why? Why? to continue to do his work of molding you into the image of Jesus so that he can be glorified through our lives. That's what he wants to do. He wants to glorify himself in our lives. Then we see the refrain in verse 14. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. We can see that that really does allude to the other two refrains that we saw, the wording is somewhat different. But as I pointed out, re return speaks about, th that word is the same word as restore. Um, but here we see, he's, he says, return, we beseech you, we beg you, O God of hosts, saying, using the same uh, uh, title as we saw back in verse 7. So look down, see us, visit the vine, meaning do your work to restore us. 
return and do this work. In verse 15, And the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let's just stop right there. Verses 15 and 16. Because as we look at those two, two verses, we see the damage, the destruction that these um, visiting enemies call, caused when they attacked Israel. You know, it, it, the, it's burned with fire, cut down, perishing at the rebuke of his countenance. But notice verse 15. The vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. Now, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's very powerful right there because we, we, we see the psalmist speaking about God's power, his right hand, this vineyard that you in your power have planted. And the branch of the vineyard that you yourself, in your strength, for yourself, you made it strong. The work that you did in bringing Israel into this land has been undone by another. How can something else, some other power, some other nation, some other God do that to you? Your power your might, your strength overcome your work done in that way overcome by another. You know, and, and it's another way of saying, as we've seen in the other Psalms that we've looked at, and, and some of them, you know, uh, we, we saw it back in the 79th Psalm, verse, verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You know, if, if, if this God is so powerful, and, and, and remember the reputation that Israel had when they came out of Egypt. You know, I mean, again, that was a few hundred years before. I mean, more than 500 years. In 500 years, we're talking about the, them being established within the, 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 the nation of, within the promised land. You know, that was more than 40 years after they were delivered from Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they began entering into the land. That took some years for that to actually be accomplished. So, I mean, but, but you remember Rahab the harlot and the words that she said to the spies there in Jericho. You know, that, that they had heard about the people of Israel and, and, and that they're their hearts were melting. You know, I mean, they, they were just so discouraged and fearful because this God who delivered them from the hand of Egypt killed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Now these the same people and the same God has moved into Jericho, toward Jericho, and they're thinking, what is going to happen to us? Right? Now fast forward a few hundred years, and now this. Is this the same God? Are these the same people? Well, the same God, but not the same people. God actually was 
disciplining his people through this work. So, uh, but I think that's very powerful. The, this, the thing that you've done in, 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 in bringing your vine into this land is burned with fire, it's cut down, perishing at the rebuke of your countenance. And, and, then, and then the prayer, verses 17 and 18. Look at this. Let your right hand be upon the man of your right hand. Excuse me, let, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. So, Asaph, this later Asaph, writes, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Now, it is likely that he was doing nothing more than referring to the king of Israel. The man of your right hand. As the king of Israel, it's, it's as if he's your right hand in this land. Let your hand be upon him. But then he says, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. And, and, and while this has to be a reference to the king of Israel from Asaph's perspective, we can't miss the language that is there. You know, ultimately, and with so many prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, uh, and, and this is a prayer, but it's a, it, is, it turns out to be a prophetic prayer. As he's praying for the king of Israel at that point, we can see that ultimately it is a request of God for the king of kings and lord of lords to come and deliver us. Ultimately, that's what we see here. In Ephesians 1.20, we see Paul writing these words, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Why that verse? Well, he's the man of his right hand. You know, we, we know that it's only Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, who is at the right hand of the Father. It's a reference to Jesus. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon wrote this. He wrote, Nations rise or fall largely through the instrumentality of individuals, you know, leaders, kings, presidents, um, uh, uh, emperors, and so forth. By Napoleon, the kingdoms are scourged, and by a Wellington, nations are saved from the tyrant. It is by the man Christ Jesus that fallen Israel is yet to rise. And indeed through him who deigns to call himself the son of man, the world is to be delivered from the dominion of Satan and the curse of sin. And, and so we see that reference being not just simply to the king of Israel there, but also ultimately to Jesus himself. Again, the king of kings and and Lord of Lords, who will deliver us. He's done that work of deliverance. We haven't seen the fullness of it. We're experiencing it in part while we're in this world, but we will know it fully when we see him face to face. 
and talk about his countenance shining on us, right? When we see him face to face, when we have his, his own uh, glory about us, he gives us that robe of glory so that we're able to stand before God and we're not tainted by, by, by the, the, the sinfulness of our own flesh and we're going to see him in all of his power and all of his glory. I mean, how incredible is that going to be? That's going to be crazy, guys, isn't it? It's going to be crazy. And that's what's ahead of us. That's what's ahead of us. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when things get rough here in this world. You know, um, I quoted from John 16:33 earlier, you know, and, and, and it's, that, that's something that is a very, very important verse for us. But it tells us that in this world we will have tribulation, but that Jesus has overcome it. So because he has overcome it, he's already overcome it, we experience the, 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 the brokenness of the world because of sin, and it's painful, but we're looking to a better home. Like Abraham was looking to a better home, as Paul writes in Romans, looking to a better home. We, we're we're going to be fully in his presence. He's with us now, but not in the fullness of all that he is in terms of our being able to see and recognize and experience that fullness because we're still li limited by the, f the, the sinful flesh of, of, of who we are. There's a limit. Yeah, we're saved. We're right with God. But we're only getting a taste of it right now. And it's a glorious, wonderful taste at times, isn't it? But then... Like, like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Right? That's before us, guys. Let's, let's not lose heart as things take place in our lives. When your hand is upon this king, now again, from Asaph's perspective, he's talking about God's hand upon the king to lead the nation rightly and restore them. He says, then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. You know, when, when I read that, revive us and we will call upon your name. Are we to wait until revival happens before we call upon his name? No, huh? No. And I, I think the writer Asaph is, 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 is wanting to just express to the Lord that, you know, just be yourself to us and, and, we're, we're, and we'll stop turning away. And we'll stop not calling upon your name. We, we will call upon your name. But God, we, we need you. You know, show up, do your work, cause your face to shine upon us even now. But I think if we really, really call upon the name of Jesus, revival will take place. Now, it may not be a, a national revival. 
It may not be a regional revival. It may not even be a revival within a particular local fellowship. But it certainly will be a revival in your own heart. When we truly, honestly call upon the name of the Lord. With that commitment not to turn back from Him. The commitment to honor Him in our lives as, as best as we can. And so we see, finally in verse 19, the final refrain. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You know, this, 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 this refrain is, is something that, that is important for us to acknowledge. The, those, those, the, the second and third line of these refrains. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You know, we, we only find deliverance when God looks upon us. That's the only way it's going to happen. And so we pray for his presence. We, we pray for, for, for his, his, his blessing. We pray for his grace and his mercy. You know, have mercy upon us, O God. We know we need it. And yes, we have received mercy in the sense that we will not have to pay for our sins. But we need his mercy every single day. But his mercies are new every morning, aren't they? You know, that, that's what Jeremiah writes in Lamentations. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, what a glorious thing that is. What a wonderful thing that is. But note with me here also, uh, finally, as we, as we begin to close here, uh, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. You know, it's not just simply restore us, O God. It's not restore us, O God of hosts. It's restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Now he's adding his name. You notice the little the capital letters there, L-O-R-D. That's the very name, Yahweh. It's restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. So he's making it personal, his personal God with a personal name. Uh, it, it, it speaks of his, his eternal existence, speaks of his eternal power, all that he is throughout eternity, past and future. You know, and when we call upon the name of the Lord, when we cry out to him, and we do so honestly, and sincerely, with an understanding of who exactly we are and how we deserve none of it, but we've received so much because of his mercy and grace. When we, when we do cry out to him in that way, you are calling out to the God who can do anything, who the creator of the heavens and the earth who holds everything together. You know, um, tomorrow morning we're going to get up and we're going to see that the sun has risen again. God showing his faithfulness. That's going to happen day after day, day after day. It's never going to stop until 
there's a new heaven and a new earth. That's going to happen. That's promised us by God. And let's do that. Let's cry out to God honestly and sincerely, acknowledging him for who he is, acknowledging ourselves for who we are, understanding that it's only his mercy, only his grace, only his kindness, his loving kindness, his, his goodness, his love for us, that, that he should do anything for us. But because he is that, he does. And in humility cry out, have mercy upon me, God. Pour out your grace upon me. I need you. I need your presence today. Fill me with your grace. Fill me with your peace. Fill me with your hope. Fill me with your joy. Fill me with your love. I need you. And bless this day that you might be honored through the way that I live my life today. And Father, that's our prayer. I pray that each one of us will pray that prayer in the beginning of every day and continue it throughout the day. Lord, have your way in our hearts as we continue to um, walk with you. Have your way with us as you desire to form us, to make us into the image of your Son. And Lord, might as you fill us, as you do that work, as you change us, as you form us through your word and through the power of your spirit and through the various things that take place in our lives, we are your workmanship. We are still under construction. We understand that and we welcome what you're going to do, what you are doing. But Lord, we want you honored. We want you glorified and we only want your blessing so that you will be honored the way that you deserve. So, Lord, have your way. We love you, Lord. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys. Our worship duet <laughs> is going to lead us in one last song and then dismiss us, guys. Let's uh, sing it out loud. You know, I mean, earlier we, we, we sang that, that last song and, and, you know, oh, my soul, you know, don't, I forgot the exact words, but don't, don't let me down. Don't, what was it? Something like that. Um, anyway, cry out, cry out loud, you know, sing loud, sing loud. I know there's not that many here, but make it sound like there is, okay? God bless you guys. Have a great evening. Thank you, ladies, for leading us in worship tonight.